Even clowns know heartache. Authors Carson McCullers and Richard Bausch take on stories of outcasts in love on this week's Selected Shorts. I'm Malik Pancholi, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. You may know me as a guest host and regular reader at Selected Shorts, or you might know me as an actor on shows such as Weeds and 30 Rock. I'm also a writer, and my middle grade book, The Best at It, is about a smart, quirky kid named Rahul Kapoor. After trying his best to determine his place in the world, he finally finds his own path forward. That's not to say it's easy. It isn't for most of us. Though we all experience the same kinds of ups and downs, plenty of us struggle to find purpose and community, even when we're grown. On this show, stories of people at society's fringes, looking to experience the kind of intimate relationships enjoyed by everyone else. Or, to put it another way, outcasts in love. In one story, a clown falls head over heels without a banana peel. In another, a drifter learns to say, I love you. Our first piece is by the prolific writer Richard Bausch. He is the author of numerous novels and short story collections, including The Last Good Time, Something is Out There, and The Stories of Richard Bausch. He has been awarded an NEA grant, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and not for nothing, the Ray Award for the short story. While plenty of authors write about characters at their breaking points, Bausch seems to innately understand the pain and confusion behind these moments. And his incisive wit lightens even the most tumultuous circumstances. In Tandolfo the Great, a drunken, sad sack birthday clown faces heartbreak the way a birthday clown must, by entertaining kids at a party. Performing the story is a comic and actor we love, Michael Ian Black. He was one of the founding members of The State and appeared in Stella and Wet Hot American Summer. He's also an author of funny nonfiction books, including You're Not Doing It Right and A Better Man. Here he is ringing laughs from the pathos of Richard Bausch's story, Tandolfo the Great. Tandolfo, he says, to his own image in the mirror over the bathroom sink. She loves you not. Oh, she doesn't, doesn't, doesn't. He's put the makeup on, packed the bag of tricks, including the rabbit that he calls Chi-Chi, and the bird, the attention-getter, Witch. He's to do a birthday party for some five-year-old on the other side of the river, a crowd of babies and the adults waiting around for him to screw up. This is going to be one of the tough ones. He has fortified himself, and he feels ready. He isn't particularly worried about it, but there's a little something else he has to do first, something on the order of the embarrassingly ridiculous. He has to make a delivery. This morning at the local bakery, he picked up a big pink wedding cake with its six tiers and scalloped edges and its miniature bride and groom on top. He'd ordered it on his own. He'd taken the initiative, planning to offer it to a young woman he works with. He managed somehow to set the thing on the back seat of the car, and when he got home, 
he found a note from her announcing, excited and happy, that she's engaged. The man she'd had such difficulty with has had a change of heart. He wants to get married after all. She's going off to Houston to live. She loves her dear old Tandolfo with a big kiss and a hug always, and she knows he'll have every happiness. She's so thankful for his friendship, her magic man, her sweet clown. She actually drove over here and finding him gone, left a note for him, folded under the door knocker, her note paper with the tangle of flowers at the top. She wants him to call her, come by as soon as he can to help celebrate. Please, she says, I want to give you a big hug. He read this and then walked out to stand on the sidewalk and look at the cake in its place on the back seat of the car. Good God, he said. He'd thought he would put the clown outfit on, deliver the cake in person, an elaborate proposal to a girl he's never even kissed. He's a little unbalanced, and he knows it. <laughs> Over the months of their working together at Bailey and Brecht department store, he's built up tremendous feelings of loyalty and yearning toward her. He thought she felt it too. He interpreted gestures, her hand lingering on his shoulder when he made her laugh, her endearments tinged as they seemed to be with a kind of sadness as if she were afraid for what the world might do to someone so romantic. You sweet clown, she said. She said it a lot. And she talked to him about her ongoing sorrows, the man she'd been in love with who kept waffling about getting married, wanting no commitments. Tandolfo, a.k.a. Rodney Wilbury, told her that he hated men who weren't willing to run the risks of love. Why, he personally was the type who'd always believed in marriage and children, lifelong commitments. It was true that he had caused difficulties for himself, and life was a disappointment so far, but he believed in falling in love and starting a family. She didn't hear him. It all went right through her, like white noise on the radio. For weeks, he had come around to visit her, had invited her to watch him perform, she confided in him, and he thought of movies where the friend stays loyal and is a good listener and eventually gets the girl. They fall in love. He put his hope in that. He was optimistic. He'd ordered and bought the cake, and apparently the whole time, all through the listening and being noble with her, she thought of it as nothing more than friendship, accepting it from him because she was accustomed to being offered friendship. Now he leans close to the mirror to look at his own eyes through the makeup. They look clear enough. Loves you absolutely not. You must be crazy. You must be the great Tandolfo. Yes. 26 years old, out of luck, Tandolfo. In love. With a great oversized cake in the back of his car. It's a Sunday, a cool April day. He's a little inebriated. That's the word he prefers. It's polite. It suggests something faintly silly. <laughs> Nothing could be sillier than to be dressed like this in broad daylight and to go driving across the bridge into Virginia to put on a magic show. Nothing could be sillier than to have spent all that money on a completely useless purchase, a cake six tiers high, maybe 15 pounds of sugar. When he has made his last inspection of the clown face in the mirror, 
and checked the bag of tricks and props. He goes to his front door and looks through the screen at the architectural shadow of the cake in the back seat. The inside of the car will smell like icing for days. He'll have to keep the windows open even if it rains. He'll go to work smelling like confectionery delights. The whole thing makes him laugh, a wedding cake. He steps out of the house and makes his way in the late afternoon sun down the sidewalk to the car, as if they had been waiting for him. Three boys come skating down from the top of the hill. He has the feeling that if he tried to sneak out like this at two in the morning, someone would come by and see him anyway. Hey, Rodney, one boy says. I mean, Tendolfo. Tendolfo recognizes him, a neighborhood boy, a tough just the kind to make trouble, just the kind with no sensitivity to the suffering of others. Leave me alone or I'll turn you into spaghetti, he says. Hey guys, it's Tendolfo the Great. The boy's hair is a bright blonde color and you can see through it to his scalp. Scram, Tendolfo says, really. Aw, what's your hurry, man? I've just set off a nuclear device, Tendolfo says with grave seriousness. It's on a timer. Oof. Do a trick for us, the blonde one says. Where's the scurvy rabbit ears? I gave it the week off. Someone, last winter, poisoned the first Chi-Chi. He keeps the cage indoors now. I'm in a hurry. No rabbit to help with the driving. But they're interested in the cake now. Hey, what's that? Jesus, is that real? Just stay back. Tendolfo gets his cases into the trunk and hurries to the driver's side door. The three boys are peering into the back seat. To the blonde boy, he says, you're gonna go bald, aren't you? (laughs) Hey man, a cake, can we have a piece of it? One of them says, back off, Tandolfo says. Another says, come on, Tandolfo. Hey, Tandolfo, I saw some guys looking for you, man. They said you owed them money. He gets in, ignoring them, and starts the car. Sucker, the blonde one says. Hey man, who's the cake for? He drives away, thinks of himself leaving them in a cloud of exhaust. Riding through the green shade, he glances in the rearview mirror and sees the clown face, the painted smile. It makes him want to laugh. He tells himself he's his own cliche, a clown with a broken heart. Looming behind him is the cake, like a passenger in the back seat. The people in the cake store had offered it to him in a box. He had made them give it to him like this, on a cardboard slab. It looks like it might melt. He drives slow, worried that it might sag or even fall over. He has always believed viscerally that gestures mean everything. When he moves his hands and brings about the effects that amaze little children, he feels larger than life, unforgettable. He learned the magic while in high school as a way of making friends. And though it didn't really make him any friends, he's been practicing it ever since. (laughs) It's an extra source of income, and lately, income has had a way of disappearing too quickly. He has been in some travail, betting the horses, betting the sports events. He's hung over all the time. There have been several polite warnings at work. He has managed so far to tease everyone out of the serious looks the cool study of his face. The fact is, people like him in an abstract way, the way they like distant clownish figures, the comedian whose name they can't remember. He can see it in their eyes, 
Even the rough characters, after his loose change, have a certain sense of humor about it. He's a phenomenon, a subject of conversation. There's traffic on Key Bridge, and he's stuck for a while. It becomes clear that he'll have to go straight to the birthday party. Sitting behind the wheel of the car with his cake behind him, he becomes aware of people in other cars noticing him. In the car to his left, a girl stares, chewing gum. She waves, rolls the window down. Two others are with her, one in the back seat. Hey, she says. He nods smiles inside what he knows is the clown's smile. His teeth will look dark against the makeup. Where's the party, she says. But the traffic moves again. He concentrates. The snarl is on the other side of the bridge, construction of some kind. He can see the cars in a line, waiting to go up the hill into Rosalind and beyond. Time is beginning to be a consideration. In his glove box, he has a flask of bourbon more fortification. He reaches over and takes it out, looks around himself. No police anywhere. Just the idling cars and people tuning their radios or arguing or simply staring out as if at some distressing event. The smell of the cake is making him woozy. He takes a swallow of the bourbon and puts it away. The car with the girl in it goes by in the left lane and they are not looking at him. He watches them go on ahead. He's in the wrong lane again. He can't remember a time when his lane was the only one moving. He told her once that he considered himself of the race of people who gravitate to the non-moving lanes of highways and who cause green lights to turn yellow merely by approaching them. She took the idea and ran with it saying that she was of the race of people who emit enzymes which instill a sense of impending doom in marriageable young men. No, Tandolfo Rodney said, I'm living proof that isn't so. I have no such fear and I'm with you. But you're of the race of people who make mine relax all the enzymes. You're not emitting the enzymes now, I see. No, she said, it's only with marriageable young men. I emit enzymes that prevent people like you from seeing that I am a marriageable young man. I'm too relaxed to tell, she said, and touched his shoulder. A plain affectionate moment that gave him tossing nights and fever. Because of the traffic, he's late to the birthday party. He gets out of the car, and two men come down to greet him. He keeps his face turned away, remembering too late the breath mints in his pocket. Jesus, one of the men says, look at this. Hey, who ordered the cake? I'm not paying for the cake. The cake stays, Tandolfo says. What does he mean it stays? Is that a trick? They're both looking at him. The one spoken to must be the birthday boy's father. He's wearing a party cap that says, Dad. He has long, dirty-looking strands of brown hair jutting out from the cap, and there are streaks of sweaty grit on the side of his face. So you're the great Tandolfo, he says, extending a meaty red hand. Isn't it hot in that makeup? No, sir. We've been playing volleyball. You've exerted yourselves. They look at him. What do you do with the cake? The one in the dad cap asks. Cake's not part of the show, actually. You just carry it around with you? <laughs> the other man laughs. He's wearing a t-shirt with a smiley face on the chest. This ought to be some show, he says. They all make their way across the lawn to the porch of the house. 
It's a big party, bunting everywhere, and children gathering quickly to see the clown. Ladies and gentlemen, says the man in the dad cap, I give you Tandolfo the Great. Tandolfo isn't ready yet. He's got his cases open, but he needs a table to put everything on. The first trick is where he releases the bird. He'll finish with the best trick, in which the rabbit appears as if from a pan of flames. This always draws a gasp, even from the adults. The fire blooms in the pan, down goes the lid, it's the rabbit's tight container. The latch is tripped, and the skin of the lid lifts off. Voila, rabbit. The fire is put out by the fireproof cage bottom. He's gotten pretty good at making the switch, and if the crowd isn't too attentive, as children often are not, he can perform certain sleight-of-hand tricks with some style. But he needs a table, and he needs time to set up. The whole crowd of children is seated in front of their parents on either side of the doorway into the house. Tandolfo is standing on the porch, his back to the stairs, and he's been introduced. Hello, boys and girls, he says, and bows. Tandolfo needs a table. A table, one of the women says. The adults simply regard him. He sees light sweaters, shapely hips, and wild hair. He sees beer cans in tight fists, heavy jowls, bright ice-blue eyes, a little row of faces, and one elderly face. He feels more inebriated than he likes and tries to concentrate. Mommy, I want to touch him, one child says. (laughs) Look at the cake, says another, who gets up and moves to the railing on Tandolfo's right and trains a new pair of shiny binoculars on the car. Do we get some cake? There's cake, says the man in the dad cap, but not that cake. Get down, Ethan. I want that cake. Get down. This is Teddy's birthday. Mommy, I want to touch him. I need a table, folks. I told somebody that over the telephone. He did say he needed a table. I'm sorry, says a woman who is probably the birthday boy's mother. She's quite pretty, leaning in the doorframe with a sweater tied to her waist. A table, says still another woman. Tandolfo sees the birthmark on her mouth, which looks like a stain. He thinks of this woman as a child in school with this difference from other children, and his heart goes out to her. I need a table, he says to her, his voice as gentle as he can make it. What's he going to do, perform an operation, said Dad. It amazes Tandolfo how easily people fall into talking about him as though he were an inanimate object or something on a television screen. The great Candolfo can do nothing until he gets a table, he says, with as much mysteriousness and drama as he can muster under the circumstances. I want that cake out there, says Ethan, still at the porch railing. The other children start talking about cake and ice cream and the big cake Ethan has spotted. There's a lot of confusion and restlessness. One of the smaller children, a girl in a blue dress, approaches Tandolfo. What's your name? She says, swaying slightly, her hands behind her back. Go sit down, he says to her. We have to sit down, or Tandolfo can't do his magic. In the doorway, two of the men are struggling with a folding card table. It's one of those rickety ones with the skinny legs, and it probably won't do. That's kind of shaky, isn't it? Says the woman with the birthmark. I said Tandolfo needs a sturdy table, boys and girls.
there's more confusion. The little girl has come forward and taken hold of his pant leg. She's just standing there, holding it, looking up at him. We have to go sit down, he says, bending to her, speaking sweetly, clown-like. We have to do what Tandolfo wants. Her small mouth opens wide as if she's trying to yawn. And with pale eyes, quite calm and staring, she emits a screech, an ear-piercing, non-human shriek <laughs> that brings everything to a stop. Tandolfo Rodney steps back with his amazement and his inebriate heart. Everyone gathers around the girl who continues to scream, less piercing now, her hands fisted at her sides, those pale eyes closed tight. What happened? The man in the dad cap wants to know. Where the hell's the magic tricks? I told you, all I needed is a table. What'd you say to make her cry? Dad indicates the little girl who is giving forth a series of broken, grief-stricken howls. I want magic trick, the birthday boy says loud. Where's the magic trick? Perhaps if we move the whole thing inside, the woman with the birthmark says, fingering her left ear and making a face. The card table has somehow made its way to Tendolfo through the confusion and grief. The man in the dad cap sets it down and opens it. There, he says, as if his point has been made. In the next moment, Tandolfo realizes that someone's removed the little girl. Everything's relatively quiet again, though her cries are coming through the walls of one of the rooms inside the house. There are perhaps 15 children, mostly seated before him, and five or six men and women behind them or kneeling with them. Okay now, Dad says, Tandolfo the Great. Hello, little boys and girls, Tandolfo says, deciding that the table will have to suffice. I'm happy to be here. Are you glad to see me? A general uproar commences. Well, good, he says, because just look what I have in my magic bag. And with a flourish, he brings out the hat that he will release witch from. The bird is encased in a fold of shiny cloth, pulsing there. He can feel it. He rambles on talking fast or trying to, and when the time comes to reveal the bird, he almost flubs it. But Witch flaps his wings and makes enough of a commotion to distract even the adults who applaud and urge the stunned children to follow suit. Isn't that wonderful, Tandolfo hears, out of nowhere. He had it hidden away, says the birthday boy, managing to temper his astonishment. He's clearly the type who heaps scorn on those things he can't understand or own. Now, Tandolfo says, for my next spell, I need a helper from the audience. He looks right at the birthday boy. Round face, short nose, freckles, bright red hair, little green eyes. The whole countenance speaks of glutted appetites and sloth. This kid could be on Roman coins. <laughs> An emperor. He's not used to being compelled to do anything, but he seems eager for a chance to get into the act. How about you, Tandolfo says to him. The others, led by their parents, cheer. The birthday boy gets to his feet and makes his way over the bodies of the other children to stand with Tandolfo. In order for the trick to work, Tandolfo must get everyone watching the birthday boy, and there's a funny hat he keeps in the bag for this purpose. Now, he says to the boy, since you're part of the show, 
you have to wear a costume. He produces the hat as if from behind the boy's ear. Another cheer goes up. He puts the hat on the boy's head and adjusts it, crouching down. The green eyes stare impassively at him. There's no hint of awe or fascination in them. There we are, he says. What a handsome fellow. But the birthday boy takes the hat off. We have to wear the hat to be on stage. Ain't a stage, the boy says. Well, but hey, Tandolfo says, for the benefit of the adults, didn't you know that all the world's a stage? He tries to put the hat on him again, but the boy moves from under his reach and slaps his hand away. We have to wear the hat, Tandolfo says, trying to control his anger. We can't do the magic without our magic hats. He tries once more, and the boy waits until the hat is on, then simply removes it and holds it behind him, shying away when Tandolfo tries to retrieve it. The noise of the others now sounds like the crowd at a prize fight. There's a contest going on and they're enjoying it. Give Tandolfo the hat. We want magic, don't we? Do the magic, the boy demands. I'll do the magic if you give me the hat. I won't. Nothing. No support from the adults. Perhaps if he weren't a little tipsy, perhaps if he didn't feel ridiculous and sick at heart and forlorn with his wedding cake and his odd, mistaken romance, his loneliness, which he has always borne gracefully and with humor, and his general dismay. Perhaps if he were to find it in himself to deny the sudden, overwhelming sense of the unearned affection given this lumpish, slovenly version of stupid, complacent, spoiled satiation standing before him, he might have simply gone on to the next trick. Instead, at precisely that moment, when everyone seemed to pause, he leans down and says, give me the hat, you little prick. (laughs) The green eyes widen. The quiet is heavy with disbelief. Even the small children can tell that something's happened to change everything. (laughs) Tandolfo has another trick, Rodney says loud, where he makes the birthday boy pop like a balloon, especially if he's a fat birthday boy. (laughs) A stirring among the adults. (laughs) Especially if he's an ugly slab of gross flesh like this one here. Now just a minute, says Dad. Pop, Rodney says to the birthday boy, who drops the hat and then, seeming to remember that defiance is expected, makes a face, sticks out his tongue. Rodney Tandolfo is quick with his hands by training, and he grabs the tongue. Ah! The boy says, ah, ah, ah! Abracadabra, Rodney, let's go. And the boy falls backward onto the lap of one of the other children. More cries. Whoops, time to sit down, says Rodney. Sorry I had to leave so soon. Very quickly, he's being forcibly removed. They're rougher than gangsters. They lift him, punch him, tear at his costume, even the women. Someone hits him with a spoon. The whole scene boils over onto the lawn where someone has released Chi-Chi from her case. 
Chi-Chi moves about wide-eyed, hopping between running children, evading them, as Tandolfo the Great cannot evade the adults. He's being pummeled because he keeps trying to return for his rabbit, and the adults won't let him off the curb. Okay, he says, finally collecting himself. He wants to let them know he's not like this all the time. Wants to say it's circumstances, grief, personal pain hidden inside seeming brightness and cleverness. He's a man in love, humiliated, wrong about everything. He wants to tell them, but he can't speak for a moment, can't even quite catch his breath. He stands in the middle of the street, his funny clothes torn, his face bleeding, all his magic strewn everywhere. I would at least like to collect my rabbit, he says, and is appalled at the absurd sound of it, its huge difference from what he intended to say. He straightens, pushes the grime from his face, adjusts the clown nose, and looks at them. I would say that even though I wasn't as patient as I could have been, the adults have not comported themselves well here, he says. Drunk, one of the women says. Almost everyone's chasing Chi-Chi now. One of the older boys approaches carrying Witch's case. Witch looks out the air hole, impervious, quiet as an idea. And now one of the men, someone Rodney hadn't noticed before, an older man clearly wearing a hairpiece, brings Chi-Chi to him. Bless you, Rodney says staring into the man's sleepy, deploring eyes. I don't think we'll pay you, the man says. The others are filing back into the house, herding the children before them. Rodney speaks to the man. The rabbit appears out of fire. The man nods. Go home and sleep it off, kid. Right. Thank you. He puts Chi-Chi in his compartment, stuffs everything in its place in the trunk. Then he gets in the car and drives away. Around the corner, he stops, wipes off what he can of the makeup. It's as if he's trying to remove the stain of bad opinion and disapproval. Nothing feels any different. He drives to the suburban street where she lives with her parents, and by the time he gets there, it's almost dark. The houses are set back in the trees. He sees lighted windows, hears music, the sound of children playing in the yard. He parks the car and gets out, a breezy April dusk. I am Tandolfo, the soft-hearted, he says. Hearken to me. Then he sobs. He can't believe it. Jeez, he said. Lord. He opens the back door of the car, leans in to get the cake. He'd forgot how heavy it is. Staggering with it, making his way along the sidewalk, intending to leave it on her doorstep. He has an inspiration. Hesitating only for the moment it takes to make sure there are no cars coming, he goes out and sets it down in the middle of the street. Part of the top sags from having bumped his shoulder as he pulled it off the back seat. The bride and groom are almost supine, one on top of the other. <laughs> He straightens them, steps back, and looks at it. In the dusky light, it looks blue, 
It sags just right, with just the right angle, expressing disappointment and sorrow. Yes, he thinks, that's the place for it. The aptness of it, sitting out like this, where anyone might come by and splatter it all over creation, makes him feel a faint sense of release, as if he were at the end of a story. Everything will be all right if he can think of it that way. He's wiping his eyes, thinking of moving to another town. Failures are beginning to catch up to him, and he's still aching in love. He thinks how he has suffered the pangs of failure and misadventure, but in this painful instance, there's symmetry, and he will make the one eloquent gesture, leaving a wedding cake in the middle of the road like a sugar-icinged pylon. Yes. He walks back to the car, gets in, pulls around, and backs into the driveway of the house across the street from hers. Leaving the engine idling, he rolls the window down and rests his arm on the sill, gazing at the incongruous shape of the cake there in the falling dark. He feels almost glad, almost in some strange, inexpressible way, vindicated. He imagines what she might do if she saw him here, imagines that she comes running from her house, calling his name, looking at the cake and admiring it. He conjures a picture of her attacking the tears of pink sugar and the muscles of his abdomen tighten. But then this all gives way to something else, images of destruction, of flying dollops of icing. He's surprised to find that he wants her to stay where she is, doing whatever she's doing. He realizes that what he wants, and for the moment all he really wants, is what he now has, a perfect vantage point from which to watch oncoming cars. (laughs) Turning the engine off, he waits, concentrating on the one thing. He's a man imbued with interest, almost peaceful with it, almost, in fact, happy with it, sitting there in the quiet car and patiently awaiting the results of his labor. Thank you. That was Tandolfo the Great by Richard Bausch, read by Michael Ian Black. Which brings me to today's big ask. Hug your local birthday clown, will you? Even if it's selfish and you just don't want to mow down an abandoned wedding cake with your car. Even if they call themselves Tandolfo. Clowns need love, okay? Now, I don't know this for a fact, but listening to Michael Ian Black read that story, I could only imagine that he himself may have had to perform in some less than stellar venues. I moved out to Los Angeles right after undergrad, and one of my first theater experiences in LA was a children's production of, wait for it, Aladdin. And we performed at The Roxy, an adult nightclub on Sunset Boulevard. On weekends at 10 a.m., they would mop up the spilt alcohol and cover the condom dispensers in the bathroom with cardboard before letting the children in. But I have to say, the kids were better behaved than they were in that story. When we return, Carson McCullers and the science of love. I'm Malik Pancholi. You are listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back to Selected Shorts. Each week, our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Malik Pancholi. Carson McCullers is the American laureate of Outcasts. Her novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, her play, The Member of the Wedding, and her novellas and short stories, including The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, are rife with outsiders. McCullers' works deliver sensitive, indelible portraits of people on the fringes, struggling to connect with others. Our next story, A Tree, A Rock, A Cloud, fits right in with the best of McCullers' work. In it, a chatty stranger interrupts the usual rhythms of a small-town diner. But this newcomer doesn't fill the air with banter about sports and weather. After studying love up close, he aims to teach his audience a revolutionary new way to live. Who better to bring this story to life than actor Lance Reddick? He's known for series such as The Wire and Bosch, as well as the John Wick movies and the comedy Corporate. His stern or stoic characters belie their sensitivity, and his sonorous voice makes even the simplest lines resonate. Here's Lance Reddick performing Carson McCullers' A Tree, A Rock, A Cloud. It was raining that morning and still very dark. When the boy reached the streetcar cafe, he'd almost finished his route and he went in for a cup of coffee. The place was an all-night cafe owned by a bitter and stingy man called Leo. After the raw, empty street, the cafe seemed friendly and bright. Along the counter, there were a couple of soldiers, three spinners from the cotton mill, and in a corner, a man who sat hunched over with his nose and half his face down in a beer mug. The boy wore a helmet such as aviators wear. When he went into the cafe, he unbuckled the chin strap and raised the right flap up over his pink little ear. Often as he drank his coffee, someone would speak to him in a friendly way. But this morning, Leo did not look into his face and none of the men were talking. He paid and was leaving the cafe when a voice called out to him. Son! Hey, son! He turned back, and the man in the corner was crooking his finger and nodding to him. He had brought his face out of the beer mug and he seemed suddenly very happy. The man was long and pale with a big nose and faded orange hair. Hey, son! The boy went forward. He was an undersized boy of about 12 with one shoulder drawn higher than the other because of the weight of the paper sack. His face was shallow, freckled, and his eyes were round child eyes. Yeah, mister? The man laid one hand on the paper boy's shoulders, then grasped the boy's chin and turned his face slowly from one side to the other. The boy shrank back uneasily. Say, what's the big idea? The boy's voice was shrill. Inside the cafe, it was suddenly very quiet. The man said slowly, I love you. All along the counter, the men laughed. The boy who had scowled and sidled away did not know what to do. He looked over the counter at Leo, and Leo watched him with a weary, brittle jeer. The boy tried to laugh also, but the man was serious and sad. I did not mean to tease you, son, he said. Sit down and have a beer with me. There is something I have to explain. Cautiously out of the corner of his eye, the paper boy questioned the men along the counter to see what he should do. But they had gone back to their beer or their breakfast and did not notice him. Leo put a cup of coffee on the counter and a little jug of cream. He is a miner, Leo said. 
The paper boy slid himself up onto the stool. His ear beneath the upturned flap of the helmet was very small and red. The man was nodding at him soberly. It is important, he said. Then he reached in his hip pocket and brought out something which he held up in the palm of his hand for the boy to see. Look very carefully, he said. The boy stared, but there was nothing to look at very carefully. The man held in his big grimy palm a photograph. It was the face of a woman, but blurred so that only the hat and the dress she was wearing stood out clearly. See, the man asked. The boy nodded and the man placed another picture in his palm. The woman was standing on a beach in a bathing suit. The suit made her stomach very big and that was the main thing you noticed. You got a good look? He leaned over closer and finally asked. You ever seen it before? The boy sat motionless, staring slantwise at the man. Well, not so I know of. Very well. The man blew on the photographs and put them back into his pocket. That was my wife. Dead? The boy asked. Slowly, the man shook his head. He pursed his lips as though about to whistle and answered in a long, drawn way. No, he said. I will explain. The beer on the counter before the man was in a large brown mug. He did not pick it up to drink. Instead, he bent down and putting his face over the rim, he rested there for a moment. Then with both hands, he tilted the mug and sipped. Some night you'll go to sleep with a big nose in a mug and drown, said Leo. Prominent transient drowns in beer. That'll be a cute death. The paper boy tried to signal to Leo. While the man was not looking, he screwed up his face and worked his mouth to question soundlessly. Drunk? But Leo only raised his eyebrows and turned away to put some pink strips of bacon on the grill. The man pushed the mug away from him, straightened himself up, and folded his loose, crooked hands on the counter. His face was sad as he looked at the paper boy. He did not blink, but from time to time, the lids closed down with delicate gravity over his pale green eyes. It was nearing dawn, and the boy shifted the weight of the paper sack. I am talking about love, the man said. With me, it is a science. The boy half slid down from the stool, but the man raised his forefinger, and there was something about him that held the boy and would not let him go away. And 12 years ago, I married the woman in that photograph. She was my wife for one year, nine months, three days, and two nights. I loved her. Yes, he tightened his blurred, rambling voice and said again, I loved her. I thought also that she loved me. I was a railroad engineer. She had all the home comforts and luxuries. It never crept into my brain that she was not satisfied. But do you know what happened? No, said Leo. The man did not take his eyes from the boy's face. She left me. I came in one night and the house was empty and she was gone. She left me. With a fellow? The boy asked. Gently, the man placed his palm down on the counter. Why naturally, son? A woman does not run off like that alone. The cafe was quiet. The soft rain black and endless in the street outside. Leo pressed down the frying bacon with the prongs of his long fork. So you've been chasing the floozy for 11 years, you frazzled old rascal. For the first time, the man glanced at Leo. Please don't be vulgar. Besides, I was not speaking to you. He turned back to the boy and said in a trusting and secretive tone, let's not pay any attention to him, okay? 
The paper boy nodded doubtfully. It was like this, the man continued. I'm a person who feels many things. All my life, one thing after another has impressed me. Moonlight, the leg of a pretty girl, one thing after another. But the point is that when I had enjoyed anything, there was a, a peculiar sensation as though it was laying around loose in me. Nothing seemed to finish itself up or fit in with the other things. Women, I had my portion of them, the same. Afterwards, laying around loose in me. I was a man who had never loved. Very slowly, he closed his eyelids, and the gesture was like a curtain drawn at the end of a scene in a play. When he spoke again, his voice was excited and the words came fast. The lobes of his large, loose ears seemed to tremble. Then I met this woman. I was 51 years old, and she always said she was 30. I met her in a filling station, and we were married within three days. Do you know what it was like? I just can't tell you. All I had ever felt was gathered together around this woman. Nothing lay around loose in me anymore, but was finished up by her. The man stopped suddenly and stroked his long nose. His voice sank down to a steady and reproachful undertone. Now, I'm not explaining this right. See, what happened was this. There were these beautiful feelings and loose little pleasures inside me. And this woman was something like an assembly line for my soul. I run these little pieces of myself through her, and I come out complete. Now, do you follow me? Well, what was her name? The boy asked. Oh, he said. Well, I called her Dodo, but that is immaterial. <laughs> did you try to make her come back? The man did not seem to hear. Under the circumstances, you can imagine how I felt when she left. Leo took the bacon from the grill and folded two strips of it between a bun. He had a gray face with slitted eyes and a pinched nose saddled by faint blue shadows. One of the mill workers signaled for more coffee and Leo poured it. He did not give refills on coffee free. The spinner ate at breakfast there every morning, but the better Leo knew his customers, the stingier he treated them. He nibbled his own bun as though he grudged it to himself. And you never got hold of her again? The boy did not know what to think of the man, and his child's face was uncertain with mingled curiosity and doubt. He was new on the paper route. It was still strange to him to be out in the town in the black, queer early morning. Yes, the man said. I took a number of steps to get her back. I went around trying to locate her. I went to Tulsa, where she had folks, and to Mobile. I went to every town she had ever mentioned to me, and I hunted down every man she had formerly been connected with. Tulsa, Atlanta, Chicago, Chihaw, Memphis. For the better part of two years, I chased around the country trying to lay hold of her. But the pair of them had vanished from the face of the earth, said Leo. Don't listen to him, the man said confidentially. And also, just forget those two years. They're not important. See, what matters is that around the third year, a curious thing begun to happen to me. What, the boy asked. The man leaned down and tilted his mug to take a sip of beer. But as he hovered over the mug, his nostrils fluttered slightly. He sniffed the staleness of the beer and did not drink. Love is a curious thing to begin with. At first, I only thought of getting her back. It was a kind of mania. But then as time went on, I tried to remember her. But do you know what happened? No, the boy said. When I laid myself down on a bed and tried to think about her, my mind became a blank. I couldn't see her. I would take out her pictures and look. 
No good. Nothing doing. A blank. Can you imagine it? Say, Mac, Leo called down the counter. Can you imagine this bozo's mind a blank? Slowly, as though fanning away flies, the man waved his hand. His green eyes were concentrated and fixed on the shallow little face of the paper boy. But a sudden piece of glass on a sidewalk, or a nickel tune in a music box, a shadow on a wall at night, and I would remember. It might happen in the street, and I would cry or bang my head against a lamppost. You follow me? A piece of glass, the boy said. Anything. I would walk around, and I had no power of how and when to remember her. And you think you can put up a kind of shield, but remember, don't come to a man face forward. It, it, it corners around sideways. And I was at the mercy of everything I saw and heard. Suddenly, instead of me combing the countryside to find her, she begun to chase me around in my very soul. She chasing me, mind you, in my soul. The boy asked finally, what part of the country were you in? Oh, the man groaned. I was a sick mortal. It was like smallpox. I confess, son, that I boozed. I fornicated. I committed any sin that suddenly appealed to me. I'm loath to confess it, but I will do so. When I recall that period, it is all curled in my mind. It was so terrible. Then the man leaned his head down and tapped his forehead on the counter. For a few seconds, he stayed bowed over in this position, the back of his stringing neck covered with orange furs, his hands with their long warped fingers held palm to palm in an attitude of prayer. Then the man straightened himself. He was smiling, and suddenly his face was bright and tremulous and old. It was in the fifth year that it happened, he said. And with it, I started my signs. Leo's mouth jerked with a pale, quick grin. Well, none of we boys are getting any younger, he said. Then with sudden anger, he balled up a dishcloth he was holding and threw it down hard on the floor. You draggle tail, old Romeo. Well, what happened, the boy asked. The old man's voice was high and clear. Peace, he answered. Huh? Well, you see, it's hard to explain scientifically, son, he said. I guess the logical explanation is that she and I had fleed around from each other for so long that, well, finally we just got tangled up together and laid down and quit. Peace. A queer and beautiful blankness. It was spring in Portland and the rain came every afternoon. All evening I just stayed there on my bed in the dark and that is how the signs come to me. The windows in the streetcar were pale blue with light. The two soldiers paid for their beers and opened the door. One of the soldiers combed his hair and wiped off his muddy puttees before they went outside. The three mill workers bent silently over their breakfasts. Leo's clock was ticking on the wall. It is this, and listen carefully. I meditated on love and reasoned it out. I realized what is wrong with us. Men fall in love for the first time, and what do they fall in love with? The boy's soft mouth was partly open, and he did not answer. A woman, the old man said. Without science, with nothing to go by, they undertake the most dangerous and sacred experience in God's earth. They fall in love with a woman. Is that correct, son? Well, yeah, the boy said faintly. They start at the wrong end of love. They begin at the climax. Can you wonder it is so miserable? Or do you know how men should love? 
The old man reached over and grasped the boy by the collar of his leather jacket. He gave him a gentle little shake and his green eyes gazed down, unblinking and grave. Son, do you know how love should be begun? The boy sat small and listening and still. Slowly, he shook his head. The old man leaned closer and whispered, A tree, a rock, a cloud. It was still raining outside in the street, a mild, gray, endless rain. The mill whistle blew for the six o'clock shift and the three spinners paid and went away. There was no one in the cafe but Leo, the old man, and the little paper boy. The weather was like this in Portland, he said, at the time my science was begun. I meditated and I started very cautious. I would pick up something from the street and take it home with me. I bought a goldfish and I concentrated on the goldfish and I loved it. I graduated from one thing to another. Day by day, I was getting this technique on the road from Portland to San Diego. Ah, shut up, screamed Leo suddenly. Shut up, shut up. The old man still held the collar of the boy's jacket. He was trembling and his face was earnest and bright and wild. For six years now, I have gone around by myself and built up my science, and now I am a master. Son, I can love anything. No longer do I even have to think about it. I see a street full of people and a beautiful light comes in me. I watch a bird in the sky or I meet a traveler on the road. Everything, son, and anybody, all stranger and all loved. Do you realize what a science like mine can mean? The boy held himself stiffly, his hands curled tight around the counter edge. Finally, he asked, Did you ever really find that lady? What? What say, son? I mean... The boy asked timidly, have you fallen in love with a woman again? The old man loosened his grasp on the boy's collar. He turned away and for the first time his green eyes had a vague and scattered look. He lifted the mug from the counter, drank down the yellow beer. His head was shaking slowly from side to side. Then finally he answered, no, son. You see, that is the last step in my science. I go cautious. And I'm not quite ready yet. Well, said Leo, well, well, well. The old man stood in the open doorway. Remember, he said. Framed there in the gray damp light of the early morning, he looked shrunken and seedy and frail. But his smile was bright. Remember, I love you, he said with a last nod. And the door closed quietly behind him. The boy did not speak for a long time. He pulled down the bangs on his forehead and slid his grimy little forefinger around the rim of the empty cup. Then without looking at Leo, he finally asked, was he drunk? Nope, said Leo shortly. The boy raised his clear voice higher. Then was he a dope fiend? Nope. The boy looked up at Leo and his flat little face was desperate, his voice urgent and shrill. Was he crazy? Do you think he was a lunatic? The paper boy's voice dropped suddenly with doubt. Leo? Or not? But Leo would not answer him. Leo had run a night cafe for 14 years, and he held himself to be a critic of craziness. There were the town characters and also the transients who roamed in from the night. He knew the manias of all of them, but he did not want to satisfy the questions of the waiting child. 
He tightened his pale face and was silent. So the boy pulled down the right flap of his helmet, and as he turned to leave, he made the only comment that seemed safe to him, the only remark that could not be laughed down and despised. He sure has done a lot of traveling. That was Lance Reddick performing A Tree, A Rock, A Cloud by Carson McCullers. I will say, the last time a stranger in a diner told me I love you, things took a very different turn. And that's that. We have heard two stories about people on the outside looking in on love. And though they may not enjoy the visibility of an average citizen, they also offer a perspective that the rest of us just can't see. If these stories gave you some new flash of inspiration on your own relationships, we would love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I'm Malik Pancholi. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivian Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the Short Story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. 